Ecclesiastes, here we go. Chapter 9. Over the past few weeks, we've been walking through this great wisdom book in the Old Testament. And we've seen that it's like chasing the wind to go after our security and significance and comfort in this world. Loving money, living for our careers, searching for fame. The preacher had it all. He had a garden, he had a big house, and he says all of it was vanity, fleeting, momentary. In the midst of it, he still had hard times. There's always more to the story. From Adam and Eve until today, this is a fallen world. There's disease and discord, death and destruction, shattered dreams, scattered friends, family pain, physical pain, emotional pain. So how do we live in a fallen world? Well, today we'll ask four questions to diagnose whether we're living Lives of wisdom or lives of folly in a fallen world. In a fallen world, we need to be wise. Hopefully, these questions will help diagnose our heart. We'll take them one at a time. Number one, first question. Are you enjoying life? First ten verses of chapter nine. Are you enjoying life? Look at verse one. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the one is good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That same event happens to all. Death comes no matter who you are. Presidents and rulers, servants and slaves, the powerful and the powerless, all end up in the same place. But the preacher says death can be a Great lesson to us. If you're alive, you still have time. Time to change the way you live. And he gives us an illustration in verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. When I was back in university long ago, my favorite song was a song sung by an old Christian band called Jeff Moore and the Distance. It was a song called It's Good to Be Alive. I had my own dormitory room at the time, and so in the mornings, I would quite often blast that song through my speakers, and I would sing those words at the top of my lungs. The chorus goes like this. I'm not going to (laughs) sing, but I will quote the words. And it's good to be alive, to feel the wind in my face, to see the blue in the sky. It's days like this that I realize what a gift it is. It's good to be alive. 
And it is, isn't it? But those mornings I would sing as loud as I could until one day my neighbor, who was also the director of the dormitory, told our whole staff in staff meeting that she could hear me sing each morning. And if you're Glenn Jones, you know that's not a good thing. Glenn still won't let me audition for the music team, no matter how many times I ask. But I was excited to be alive. That's what the preacher is saying in these verses. We should be so excited. We get up in the morning and it's good to be alive. That's why he says a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, if both were alive, which would you rather be? Now, how many of you would rather be a dog than a lion? Raise your hand. Okay, just some teenagers in the back, but nobody else. (laughs) Of course, you'd want to be a lion. I mean, some of us think dogs are cute, but in the days of the preacher, dogs were dirty. There's no Puffy the Poodle and Baxter the Bulldog. Dogs were scavengers. They were dirty. They were violent. They were hunters who wreaked havoc on the community. And they preyed on the vulnerable. Lions are the king of the jungle. The lion served as the emblem of the Messiah, the lion of Judah. You go to the zoo to see the lion. No child asks his or her parents to see the Dalmatians and Cocker Spaniel dogs playing together at the zoo. There's no dog exhibit. If they're both alive, you'd rather be the lion. But a living dog is better than a dead lion. The argument is it's better to be a living nobody than a dead, strong, or famous somebody. See, if you're still alive, you've got an advantage. You know you're going to die. That's what verse 5 says. It sounds grim, but it's actually an encouragement. The dead can't change anything, but you, you're alive. David Gibson, in his new book, Living Backwards, writes, Dying people who truly know they are dying are among all the people the most alive. Now here's the point. Christian, take the fact that you know you're going to die and let that truth infuse your heart today. Let it be infused in your life. You can live life in light of death. You can adjust your life now because you have more time. You're still alive. You can change the way you live today. Seize the day. You don't know why yesterday happened. You don't know what tomorrow holds. But enjoy today because life is short and death will come. The preacher gives us several ways to enjoy life. Look at verse 7. Enjoy life by eating and drinking. Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Now, some of you, like me, love this verse. You may be tempted to make it your life verse. Eat with joy. Drink with a merry heart. That's it. Now, also remember, I didn't make this up. I'm just the messenger. Food is all over the Bible. And I'm an expository preacher, so I have to preach what's here. Well, not only is food and drink good, there's a sense of urgency here. The preacher says, go, go, eat with joy because as a believer, you're already approved. You're accepted by God. Don't worry. Seize the moment. Now, what about wine? 
what does that word mean exactly in the Hebrew? Well, the term wine translated into English means wine. (laughs) The translators got it right. They translated the word for what it is. The Bible isn't embarrassed by wine. Drinking alcohol is never condemned in Scripture. Jesus seemed to drink wine. He certainly made it. But even though drinking is never condemned, remember that while all things are lawful, not all things are always helpful. There's a distinction. If you used to be an alcoholic, drinking is a bad idea. Many of us give up alcohol and refrain from having it in our homes in order to be gracious to our neighbors in a Muslim country. And there are situations to refrain because we never want to cause a brother or a sister to stumble. Now, you can have your own personal convictions on this. You can choose to refrain from alcohol for a variety of reasons, but the key is not making it a new law for God's church. So by all means, live according to your conscience. Just don't force your conscience on others. Eat, drink, enjoy life. Those two categories here are probably representative of all good things in life. What he's saying is enjoy the beach. Take an abra across the creek. Go to the opera. Travel to Palawan. Go to Goa. Go visit the lions in Savo National Park in Africa. Play with your children. Read a good book. Cook for someone. Feed the poor. Train for the ministry. Enjoy life today. Because life is short. Well, verse 8. The preacher gives us another way to enjoy life. Celebrate often. We should celebrate. Verse 8. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. In these days, you'd wear sackcloth and ashes when mourning, but you'd put on white clothes when it was time to celebrate. You put oil on your head. It, It was soothing to you. It made you smell nice. The preacher's telling us, get out your suits, get out your evening gowns, and go dance the night away. Party. Celebrate life. This past week, my oldest daughter tried out for the swim team at school. It was her first time ever trying out for swimming, and so we were all ecstatic when we found out that she made the team. We celebrated with more chips and salsa than you've ever seen in your entire life. By the end of the night, I was drunk on salsa, and I was flying high on jalapenos because our family loves to celebrate. We love to party. We take any opportunity we can to celebrate what God does in our lives. We party. See, we as Christians need to learn to cultivate a spirit of joy and a spirit of thanksgiving to the Lord. My old professor, Howard Hendricks, said once that it's unbelievable that Christians are as sad as they are. He said that most Christians' faces would make a great cover for the book of Lamentations. (laughs) Right? Just so sad. Life is terrible. The preacher's reminding us it's good to be alive, isn't it? We woke up this morning. We get to gather together as as believers. We get to sing. We get to pray. We get to talk. We get to smile. We can celebrate. Celebrate life. Well, another way to enjoy life, verse 9. Enjoy your wife. 
Husbands, enjoy your wife. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Men, husbands, when God gives us direct instruction on how we should interact with our wives, we should listen. We should pay careful instruction in the book of Ephesians. Some of you in the Gulf Training Center who have been studying Ephesians in class this past week, you would know in chapter 5 that husbands are commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. But we're also commanded to enjoy our wife. That means emotional and physical and spiritual intimacy. This means that couples should enjoy spending time with one another, that we should laugh, that we should have fun. I mean, one of the things I've seen as a pastor over all these years, you see this man pursue this woman. You see him woo her with his words. He serves her. He, he's kind to her. He's gracious to her. He takes her on dates. He, he loves her. He showers his affection on her. And then they get married and they make some vows. And then what happens after that wedding day? Right? Some of those affections, some of that pursuit just kind of has a tendency to be less and less and, and, go, and go down further and further. And the husband stops pursuing his wife, stops enjoying his wife. In the words of my friend Justin Buzzard, husbands, date your wife. Pursue your wife. Enjoy your wife. That word vain here, as elsewhere in the book, doesn't mean pointless. It means short. Life is short. Life is fleeting. Life is fragile. There's not much time, so enjoy your wife today. Let me speak to some of you husbands. You are separated from your wife geographically. I know there are many in our congregation. Honestly, I want to urge you to think about reuniting yourself with your wife as soon as you can. It's hard to enjoy your wife if you don't live with your wife. Maybe she's in your home country, you're here working. Now, there are certainly many difficult situations Many of us are working to provide help back home. There may be a season or maybe a time when that's necessary. There certainly are circumstances where that may be necessary, but ultimately your wife and your kids need you more than the money you're saving or the house you're building. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain, short, fleeting life. Verse 10. Another way to enjoy life. Be faithful in the work God has given you. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. There's a sense of God's providence here. Do the work God has given you. You're a concierge at the hotel. That's your job right now. Maybe it's not your dream job, but it's your job. Serve with all your might. You're a pilot. Work hard at flying. You're a teacher. Be the most prepared and best teacher you can be. You own a business. Love your employees well. Treat your customers with the utmost respect. That word sheol there is not a synonym for hell, but it simply refers to the place of the dead, whether good or evil. When the preacher says there's no work or wisdom there, he's not denying the afterlife. He's telling us that we're all going to die, that there will be a point in time when our earthly work will finish. 
will be done. The great British pastor Charles Spurgeon once preached on this verse, and he spoke of a man who he knew who dreamed of one day standing under a banyan tree in India proclaiming the gospel to the lost. And Spurgeon responded to this man's dreams and said, My dear fellow, why don't you try the streets of London first and see whether you're eloquent there? What Spurgeon was saying is, whatever your hands find you to do now, do it. You're in London. Preach the gospel here in London. Be faithful in London now. It's good to have dreams. Many of you are dreaming about your next job. You have a dream for here, maybe a dream for back home. Work to the fullest now. Be content in what God has given you now, and you'll find that you're happier. You'll find that you have more joy. You'll find that you're more content today. Enjoy today, because life is short and death will come. That's all point number one. Well, a second question to assess whether we're living a life of wisdom. Number two, are you trusting God and responding well when life is confusing? Are you trusting God and responding well when life doesn't make sense? These next verses are more difficult to understand. They're not a logically structured argument, but a number of proverbs and short stories that are clumped together. Verse 11 The fast don't always win. The smart don't always get rich. Life doesn't work that way. The person with the highest IQ is often the fool. The biggest guy in the Bible, Goliath, is killed by a small wise boy with a sling. One of the handsomest, David, Absalom's, um, or David's son, Absalom, died hanging on a tree. Verse 12, a fish could be swimming around happily in the ocean one minute and end up in the Dubai fish market the next. In the same way, man doesn't know when his time is up. We don't know. Verse 13, wisdom is our only solution. And the preacher gives us a little story in verse 14 and following. It's a great king, and he comes with all of his army upon a small city. And in this small city, there's a poor wise man and just a few other people in it. But that poor man, with this few people around him, deliver the whole city. But later on, he was despised and forgotten. Now, when you read those verses, who comes to mind? Well, this story is certainly not a direct prophecy of Jesus Christ, but it's a fair analogy of his saving work. Jesus was poor. Jesus was wise. And just like this passage, many have forgotten him. Many have despised him. Oh, friends, all of us were created to be in fellowship with God. But we've all turned away. We've all forgotten him. We've all left him. We've broke his laws. We've all despised his love. We've all seized independence. We've tried to find independence. And we're so sinful, we deceive ourselves. We think our biggest problem is outside of ourselves when our biggest problem is actually within us. Our biggest problem is that we have sinned against the holy God of the universe. And the Bible is clear that justice must be done, that we deserve death and judgment for sinning against the perfect holy creator God. It means we deserve to be cast away from his glorious presence. 
It's terrible to be forgotten by men in this life. But what's worse is to be forgotten by God and to be judged a sinner. Well, thankfully, God has done something about this alienation. He's provided a way for us. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life, was tempted but did not sin, and went willingly to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And it was there on the cross that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? For a time, Jesus was forgotten by God the Father so that we could have a future. God the Father turned his back on his son, giving him what we deserved. All that. So fellow believer, you and I would never be forgotten by him. Christian, I wonder if your lack of joy is because you've forgotten the forgottenness that Christ took for you. When we remember Christ's saving work for us, we'll trust God and we'll respond well, even when life is confusing. Because we know that he holds the whole world, including our lives, in his hands. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you came. You are most welcome any and every Friday. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love for you to be here. But if you're not a Christian, you need to know that God's remembrance of you is all that matters. If you don't follow Christ, turn to him. He is your only hope. If you don't follow Christ, follow him. It's the wisest decision you can make. It's to repent of your sin and to trust Jesus for salvation. But we know that the reality is many won't turn to Christ. As much as we preach, as much as we share, many won't turn to Christ, just like many won't turn to wisdom. Verse 16, the poor man was despised. Same as Jesus. But verses 17 and 18, even still, wisdom is better. It's better. Chapter 10, verse 1, though it can be messed up pretty quickly. It was an ancient science to be a perfumer. It took great skill. But one dead fly in that perfume bowl can ruin all the perfumer's work. The smallest amount of folly ruins all the wise things you can do. Your folly takes you to the left, verse 2. Now, apologies to any of you who are left-handed. But the Bible normally speaks of the right side as the good side, as the place of strength and place of blessing. The fool goes in the wrong direction, away from God. We see this many examples in the Bible. One example would be Abraham's uh, nephew Lot, who goes the wrong way, chooses to dwell in evil Sodom. Lot's decision led to his downfall and his wife's eventual death. A little foolishness can cancel out a lifetime of wisdom. That's why this is so important. Oh, Redeemer Church, has your foolishness started you off on the wrong path? Are you headed in the wrong direction by dating a non-believer? Your wrong baby steps today will eventually lead you far away from God. Married friends, are you on track for adultery if your current habits and heart attitudes remain unchecked? Employees, bosses, and those of you who are looking for work, are you taking steps towards illegitimate means of making money? Are you taking small steps? steps that are illegal 
that soon will become huge compromises before God and others? Well, verse 3 says, A fool will forever be known as a fool. Your words and actions broadcast your foolishness to the world. Go instead down the direction of wisdom. That's what the preacher is saying. Don't be a fool. Well, in verse 4, he changes and shifts gears a little bit. He says, okay, don't be a fool. Now, how do you respond to the fools in your life? Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Here's another way not to be a fool. Don't fight the fool. And don't run away from the fool. Don't take matters into your own hands. Be calm and turn away wrath. Getting angry only makes things worse. It's better to have only one angry person than two angry people. You've probably noticed this in marriage. When the second person gets angry too, then you see World War III breaking out in your home. But if one remains calm, if one doesn't fight back, if one is peaceful, then you're able to get somewhere. You're able to eventually talk through things. This is good counsel for anyone working with an angry boss, a mean teacher, a child who often loses his or her temper. We don't walk away from the relationship. We don't retaliate with like-minded blows. We respond calmly. Why? Well, the preacher says if you return folly with folly, it's self-destructive. Verses 8 and 9, chapter 10. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Be careful. Watch out for the trap of responding to folly with more folly. Here's another way not to become a fool. Don't respond to a fool in kind. Work on wisdom. Verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Wisdom gives you an edge. Sharpen your axe. If you don't, you'll have to work extra hard and not get as much done. And the preacher says, make sure you don't pursue wisdom too late. Verse 11. If the serpent bites you before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. I don't know that we really have any snakes in Dubai, but you may have snakes in your home country. What do you do if you find a snake in your house? Or if you're like me, you call for help. You call for someone who knows how to catch a snake. You call a snake charmer. Now, when do you call him? Well, before that snake kills anyone, before that snake bites anyone. If you call the charmer after the snake bites, his skills are useless. He's already bitten someone. You want to get wisdom in your life before you ruin your life. That's what verse 11 means. We need to trust God and respond well when our lives are confusing by striving for wisdom. That's point number two. Well, our third question we're confronted in our text. Number three, are your words wise or hurtful? Are your words full of wisdom or do they hurt others? Verses 12 through 15. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. 
A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. The fool talks a big game, but he doesn't really know anything. Now, it's easy to tune out the guy or gal who talks too much, isn't it? He says a lot, but in verse 15, he doesn't even know how to get to the city. The wise person chooses their words carefully. And since it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, that means wise speech starts with an overflowing of love for God. To watch our tongue means first to watch our heart. If not, look at the warning, verse 12. Speech that's foolish is self-destructive. Your lips will consume you. Literally, the verse says, your words will eat you up. The fool opens his mouth to speak, and the words that are spoken come out, and they do a U-turn, and they come back around to swallow you whole and consume you. It's a striking image. Your foolish words will destroy you. They'll get you in trouble. They'll ruin your relationships. The preacher gives us a specific example at the end of the chapter, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Well, the image is of a bird overhearing what's said and then repeating it to someone else. You may have heard the saying, a little birdie told me. Well, parrots can actually do this. They can hear something and then repeat the exact words. Your words are retweeted. Some of you will get that later on today. It's okay. (laughs) You say something foolish, and pretty soon the whole world finds out about it. Often we say things, and once we say them, we have no control over where they go. They may get passed on, even with less accuracy. Have you ever played the game, the telephone game? Maybe you've done this with kids or you've seen it happen. You get kids around in a circle and you tell the first kid a message, maybe a sentence about something. And then that kid is supposed to pass it to the second kid and then that kid passes to the next kid and it goes all the way around the circle until it comes back to the first kid. Well, what inevitably happens when it gets back to that first kid? Well, the message is all messed up. It's all changed. The words get twisted. Now, of course, this isn't just words verbally, and children aren't the only ones who play this game. Adults do this too. We hear or read something, and we twist it as we repeat it. Our phones and screens make it even worse. They give us an illusion of anonymity with no apparent consequences. Many of us, we grow in boldness on social media or text messages. We say all kinds of things that we wouldn't dare say to someone face-to-face. How easy it is to send that message, but how difficult to undo damage done by those words. Have you ever said anything you've regretted? Have you ever seen or felt foolish words come out of your mouth? Well, I will forever remember my greatest email blunder. It happened 16 years ago. I was working on the staff of a university, 
and I was very unhappy with my boss. And so I received an email from her that I wasn't happy about, and I decided that to vent, I was going to forward it to, to Gloria, to my wife, and didn't just forward it to her, but I decided I was going to give her some commentary, make some mean comments about my boss. I did that. I felt better about myself. And then I sent the email. Then seconds later, I had a heart attack. As I realized right before my very own eyes that I had accidentally sent that email to my boss. Has this ever happened to you? Maybe you're writing to someone, but then you think you're thinking about someone else. Or maybe you're on WhatsApp, right? And you have a few conversations going and you accidentally say something to one person that you meant for another person. Whoops. Well, it happened to me and it wasn't good. Now, my boss's office was across the campus and all I could think of doing is to run. (laughs) Not run away, but to run as fast as I could to her office. I ran like the wind. Usain Bolt would have been embarrassed by my speed if we were in a race together. I was running over and jumping over flowers, pushing everything in my way to get to my boss's office, and I got there. Now, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do when I got there, but I felt the compulsion to run. I get to her office, and it's empty. Computer's there. Computer's open. Office door is open. I think for a second. No, that would only make things worse if I got caught on her computer. So instead, thankfully, my boss's boss was nearby, and I went up to her, and she took much pity on me, seeing the distress in my face, and she called the cyber police, the the cyber internet directors of the world that she knew, and they erased the email. But not before I had my first heart attack. I'll never forget that feeling. Maybe you've had that feeling. Once we say words once we write a word and we get it out there we have no control over where those words go we can't take them back the preacher says it's not even just our words we shouldn't even think mean thoughts that's convicting don't even curse the king in your mind because out of an overflow of your mind out of an overflow of your heart you'll eventually speak them oh friends how are your words Are your words filled with grace? Or do you inflict pain with your words? Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. How are your words at work? I know at least a few of you have a boss you don't like very much. How are your words towards your boss? How about at church? Do you gossip about other church members? How about those in authority over you, maybe here in the city, maybe a government official or a ruler? How about at home, with your roommates or with your spouse or with your kids? Are your words different there than your words are here on Friday morning? Do you speak to your spouse differently in private than you do in public? Do you bring up past wrongs to your spouse? Are you an angry person? Do your words carry threats? If you're a husband or a wife, the word divorce shouldn't be a part of your couple's vocabulary. You don't make threats to your spouse. 
No, we should speak in a way that honors God in both public and private, or else somehow that little birdie is going to take your words wherever he wants. Speak wisely. That's point number three. Number four. The preacher gives us a fourth and final question to assess whether we are living a life of wisdom. Number four. Are you serving God with all your might and trusting him for fruit? Are you serving God with all your might? Are you trusting him for the fruit? Verses one through six remind us of our human inability to know the future and control our lives. But we can't retreat from life. You've got to live it. Chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. This is an odd instruction. You can imagine taking out the bread and throwing it into the water, only to see them floating away, getting gross, getting soggy. Would you ever really find that water again? And if you did, would you be happy? You certainly wouldn't eat it. It'd be moldy and slimy. Why not just... Hang on to the bread. Well, this terminology has to do with engaging in international trade, sending out one's grain, one's export, one's product to sea, and then waiting for ships to return with other goods in exchange for it. It was good business. The preacher's inviting us to do the same with our spiritual business. We invest our time, our talent, our treasure The same way. We don't waste anything. And we do so without fear of the future. We take risks for the glory of God. Verse 2, we divide our portion to seven or eight. It means to spread out your investment. You don't put all your eggs into one basket. In spiritual terms, you diversify your ministry. You don't just use one gift. You use all your gifts to the glory of God. Verse 3 is fascinating. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Rolling clouds are full of water, rain falls, nothing a farmer can do about it, can't control it. Some rain is good rain, farmers need it to make a living. If it doesn't rain enough, drought comes, we're in trouble. No matter what human innovations we make, we can't control the rain. Now in Dubai, we don't get much rain, do we? Our rainy season lasts about two hours a year. And one year, rainy season happened during our church service. Before the service, I looked out those back windows. It was sunny. There was no clouds in the sky. Ninety minutes later, we came out of the service, and Deera was completely flooded. Over a meter of rain, many of our church members couldn't get to their cars. They had to leave their cars and come back later. Our family, which lived in Deira at the time, walked here uh, because our car just didn't start. Um, And then after some nice church fellowship together, we actually swam back to our apartment. Not exactly, but we did wade through the water. I remember lifting up my pants in order to walk through the deep waters. But eventually, the waters went down, we got our cars, people went home. Other times, floods drastically affect lives. We've been praying for places like Mumbai and Houston. Floods throughout Africa and Sierra Leone and Niger and Nigeria have had many floods. We can't control the rain. We can't control nature. We can't control the future. That's what the preacher says. He gives us a second illustration which says almost the same thing. Verse 3 at the end. Sometimes a tree falls to the south. Sometimes a tree falls to the north. 
One way might be good, one way might be bad. You don't know which way that tree is going to tip over when you're chopping it down. Now, incidentally, it was actually this very verse, verse 3, that pastor and writer R.C. Sproul came to faith when he read it. As he thought about this verse, he thought about a tree falling in the wrong direction and then lying there for the rest of its days, just decaying, just rotting. And he thought that this was a picture of himself. He realized that he was a sinner going the wrong way, just rotting away. And he went to his bedroom, he got on his knees, and he asked God for forgiveness, and he trusted in Christ to save him. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 3. I mean, all of Scripture is God-breathed and helpful to us, isn't it? This is why we walk through these verses in the middle of Ecclesiastes that we may never have read before. The point in these verses, and the reason why we're reading them, is that God is in control. That's what this verse means. That's what these verses mean. God is in control and we are not. The rain could overwhelm you. That tree could fall in the wrong direction. But we need to press on and we need to trust God for fruit. Verse 4, as we press on, we don't give too much attention to the wind and to the clouds in our lives. If we do, we'll be paralyzed with fear. We won't do anything. Verse 5, it's a mystery how birth works in the same way. We don't always understand God's ways. Verse 6, we don't know which of our projects will be fruitful. So we just sow the seed of ministry everywhere. The preacher is saying, go live your life. You don't know the future. Just take the next step. Be faithful. Sow the seed. Ski the snow in front of you. Trust God. Use all your time. Use all your talent. Use all your treasure and do it with all of your might. Because you never know when that seed that you've sowed is going to make an impact. You don't know what seed will prosper. This is why we share our faith with everyone, right? We don't know who's going to believe, so we don't make the decision for God and say, well, that person would never believe. They're so hardened against Christ, I'm not going to share with them. No, we don't make that decision for God. Even if it looks impossible for someone to come to faith, we share. We sow the seed. This is why we press on when we're suffering. We don't know what God is doing, but we know that behind the scenes, God is doing a million things in our lives that we can't see, and we trust him, and we press on. This is why we stay faithful to God, even when the future is unknown, because he knows. He knows. We serve God, and we trust him. Well, we've looked at a lot of verses. The preacher started out in, verse, or in chapter 9 showing us that death is coming. And that we should live in light of that. Now here in these beginning verses in chapter 11, we get the charge to live life to the fullest. Even when life doesn't make sense. We don't try to figure it all out. But friends, it's good to be alive because we have a God who is perfectly wise. We could rest peacefully today and we can trust in the perfect wisdom of our God, because he holds all of us in his hands and he is trustworthy. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we pray that we would trust you in your ways. Father, would we be content that you are God and we are not? 
Would we grow in wisdom? Would we live our lives in an honorable way? Would we trust you for you are perfectly wise? Would we live faithfully today, giving you all the honor and all the glory and all the praise? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.